Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Sharon Fairley had a pretty good, albeit thankless, job as Chicago's top police accountability official, but she quit that post to join what has turned into a very crowded Democratic field running to replace Attorney General Lisa Madigan. How's that working out, and why does she want the job? We will ask. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. Well, we've been saying this for a while now. This is the most crowded field for any of the major races that will be decided this year. If you count the Republicans, 10 people are vying to take the job that Lisa Madigan surprisingly said she did not want anymore. And my guest this week, Sharon Fairley, surprised everyone when she announced her decision to seek it. Sharon Fairley had recently been confirmed to head COPA. That's the Citizen Office for, of Police Accountability. It's the police oversight agency that replaced IPRA, a lot of acronyms around here, the Independent Police Review Authority, and the city council agreed that Sharon Fairley had turned the much maligned IPRA around and deserved to keep doing what she was doing. But Attorney General Madigan's decision not to seek re-election shifted the landscape, so here we are. Sharon Fairley certainly has the background for the AG's post. She was a federal prosecutor for eight years. She's also been an assistant attorney general. She was first deputy assistant inspector general for the city of Chicago. But she is competing in a field that includes former Governor Pat Quinn, State Senator Kwame Raoul, Park District Board Chairman Jesse Ruiz, and Highland Park Mayor Nancy Rotering, who was with us last week, and a couple of other former federal prosecutors, among others. So she's going to have to work hard to stand out. Sharon Fairley, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Craig. Um, well, let me ask you the question I've asked the other candidates. How does a progressive Democrat stand out where there are so many different candidates uh, who have similar views on a lot of things but very different resumes? Yeah, I think you've pointed out the big difference. So for me, you know, what I look at, what I represent, I have this very sort of unique and very different set of personal and professional experiences that I will bring to the office that I think, you know, are directly relevant to the work of the office. I think that I have the full package, right, of what's necessary, whereas some of the other candidates have certain missing elements. So let me talk about that for a second. So, you know, the first thing is, you know, obviously I've worked in the office, right? So I actually have experience working in the office itself. The, the second thing is, as a federal prosecutor, I worked on the kinds of cases that are directly relevant to the work of the agency. So I worked on narcotics trafficking, firearms trafficking, and complex fraud matters. Um, in addition, there are a couple other things that I did at the office that distinguished me from the other federal prosecutors in this race. One was I spent a couple years working on the district court's drug reentry program. So I have a lot of experience working with offenders who are trying to come out and rebuild their lives, which gives me a very unique perspective on the criminal justice system. And then the other thing is I worked on the, the diversity and the hiring committees for the office. So I have this kind of collection of experiences that the other candidates don't. And then compared to some of the other lawyers in the race, my 
legal expertise spans not only criminal law from being a prosecutor, but also civil and administrative law, um, having had the experiences at the inspector general's office and then, of course, being the chief administrator of the Civilian Office of Police Accountability. So I believe that the office requires a fairly broad set of legal experiences, including complex litigation, prosecutorial experience, but also these other areas of law where some of the other candidates in this race are just lacking all of that, the breadth of that experience. Now, obviously, the task is to get your, you know, get your message out. Yes. Uh, which is why political fundraising has gotten a lot of attention in this race. Uh, Pat Quinn has suggested that uh, candidates getting money from utility companies, and there are a couple of them in this race, uh, might have trouble standing up to those utility companies in rate hike cases. A couple of candidates have uh, criticized Kwame Raoul for taking money from tobacco companies when the tobacco settlements are still before the attorney general's office. But what do you see as the pitfalls for the state's top legal official, um, and, and how do you guard against that when it's also a political post? So I think, I think you're pointing to an area where I believe that the voters should really be paying attention to this, because this is where also the candidates distinguish themselves in terms of their personal values. And I agree that I don't believe that someone running for an office that's responsible for enforcing laws against the energy companies responsible for dealing with tobacco settlements should be taking money from those entities. These candidates, you know, you know, can they can say all day that, you know, they're not going to be beholden to them. But what but the problem with that is we as citizens will always be concerned that, you know, whatever decisions are made are, are not being made for the right reasons because this money has changed hands in this manner. Um, and then the other thing is that I want to point out is that I think that in particularly this relates to the contributions that Senator Raul took from the tobacco um, special interests, is that the manner in which those contributions were structured uh, appears to be have done so to get around the campaign finance laws. And, and, and you know, there were, there were $100,000 in contributions broken up into $10,000 increments, and each of these were from a different company, but the companies were all owned by the same individual and were registered at the same address. So that's what makes it appear that these contributions were intended to get around the law. And Senator Raul's explanation for this was really unsatisfying. His, his explanation was, well, it was legal. That's not the kind of integrity we want to see out of our attorney general. The attorney general, as the top lawyer for the state, really must be beyond reproach and must take positions that you know don't put us citizens in the position of being concerned about whether or not the attorney general is making decisions for the wrong reasons or, or not. Yeah. But if you set standards for yourself that say, okay, I can't, I'm not going to take utility money, I'm not going to take corporate money, from companies that I might have to go up against, that might make raising money a bit difficult. Uh, how are you doing as far as fundraising is concerned, uh, uh, especially when the governor's race seems to be sucking all the oxygen out of not only <laughs> the, uh, the, the financial donors, but, right. uh, but the media attention as well? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, obviously fundraising is a big part of the job as a candidate, particularly a candidate for a statewide race. And I'm working really hard at it. But but I don't think that that's any reason to 
changed my values about it. And 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 this is where I think you're seeing you're seeing distinguishing you're seeing the candidates distinguishing themselves from one another. When I hear uh, Mayor Rotering or Mr. Ruiz saying, "Well, you know, we're taking this money from Exelon and People's Gas because it's a tough race and we need the money." Um, I just find that a very disappointing and unsatisfying excuse. I need the money too, but I'm choosing not to take that kind of money because I don't think that I that I want to indicate to the citizens of Illinois that that I will have any debts owed to the entities that I'm going to be responsible for regulating. And I think that that's an important distinction. Um, it's it sort of reminds me of there's this. Um, there's this great scene in the movie Terms of Endearment where the mother of the main character, um, played by Shirley MacLaine, is in the doctor's office. And she asks the doctor, she says, doctor, how's my daughter doing? And the doctor says, well, you know, you should hope for the best but expect the worst. And Shirley MacLaine goes, and they let you get away with that? <laughs> <laughs> That's my response to when I hear them say, you know, well, we, you know, this is a tough race, so we need the money. I'm like, are you kidding me? Are, and and you're, you're trying to get away with that as an excuse? That's my response to that. Well, and this brings us to my uh, my next point. I want to talk about the the situation that the the state finds itself and why you got into this race. You have said that you entered this race because of the failure of current political leaders to truly solve the problems facing the state. Um, first off, what are you saying about the current attorney general uh, who is, uh, cho- has done this for four terms? Uh, what should and could Lisa Madigan have done to be more effective in that role? So, you know, I want to I, I believe that Attorney General Madigan has done some really fantastic things in protecting the citizens of our state. And she deserves all due credit for those things. She's been a very strong advocate um, in the environmental area. She's done a very good job in protecting consumers in the financial area. Um, and um, she's also, you know, engaged in the coalition of the Democratic Attorneys General across the state to really push back against some of the harmful policies that are coming down at the federal level. And so those are all really important things. Um, I think as, as when I get into that role, I would like to obviously take those uh, accomplishments and, and build on them. Um, but I will bring a different energy and focus to the role of attorney general. And obviously, public corruption is one area where I believe that the office can be a much more proactive um, and strategic uh, about how they go about promoting public integrity throughout the state. Um, And then also working more in the public safety realm. Now, you know, Attorney General Madigan has done a really important first step about seeking court oversight of the reforms of the Chicago Police Department. And so I, I really applaud that. And of course, my having spent a couple years immersed in the world of police accountability and police reform, you know, I'm the only candidate that has that kind of direct experience in that realm. And so I'm looking forward to building on the infrastructure that she puts in place to really make sure that we have a department that's, you know, best in class for this best in class city that we have. But the, but also some of the issues that are present, you know, here in Chicago are not limited to Chicago. These are statewide issues when we talk about public safety and the challenges to public safety that communities face around our state, there are a lot of common challenges, right? Whether it's um, fighting violent crime, rebuilding trust between law enforcement and the communities that they serve. These are all issues that the attorney general can really have an impact on. And I look forward to using the the power of the office and the platform of the office to to do that. I know one of the things you talked about and the last time you and I 
uh, and were in the same place. It, it was about the, having some statewide standards for the use of force. Yes. Uh, so that that's that that's that's one area. And and let me just very briefly. Can you have one statewide standard for how force is used when you have different problems and different emphasis and different police departments with different philosophies across the state? So we actually do, right? When we we have a statute right now in place that governs um, the use of lethal force by by law enforcement officers, and then you know, of course, along those lines, every department has their own use of force policies that have to. Um, you know, function sort of within that state standard as as the underlying um, as the underlying standard. Um, and so, my goal is to identify what we really believe was as a best in class approach to these problems. And you know, it, it is something that communities need to engage with. I don't believe that you know it's something that the attorney general can necessarily dictate. Um, and which is why, when I was the chief administrator of the Independent Police Review Authority. I strongly encourage the police department to engage in a public dialogue about their use of force policies. And so it is important that the community feel comfortable with the use of force policies that exist in their jurisdiction. But what I'm trying to do is make sure that the, the underlying standard is appropriate because I do believe that the law has, has fallen behind societal norms on, on this issue. I want to talk about the city of Chicago's issues for just a second. Um, what does Mayor Emanuel need to do to make the consent decree that is finally agreed to between the AG's office and the city something that the public can have confidence in? I mean, what do you want to see or what must be in that agreement uh, that can restore public confidence in the process and the police department? Well, the first thing is it's got to be fairly comprehensive. You know, and I think that when I look at the reform plan that the police department put out last year, um, it was a good start, but it was certainly wasn't everything that the department needs to undertake in terms of getting to become or going getting back to being a best-in-class uh, police agency. Um, and so what I've said is the, the consent decree needs to identify reforms in all aspects of the way the department operates, starting with how officers are recruited. We know that the current recruiting process doesn't yield as many individuals of color um, for the department as we, we would like to see. We need to understand why that is and try to correct that. Uh, we also know that we need to recruit individuals who want to serve and not just be warriors but can be guardians. Um, we, we also need to work on the way these officers are trained. Now, the, uh, the, uh, the department has really put out a, a, a plan about changes that they're making to the training program. So we need to make sure that those uh, are fulfilled, those plans are fulfilled. But training is a really important part of, of the future changes necessary in the department. Um, and that's a core component. And I would expect to see a, a lot of structure in terms of what the city is committed to doing in terms of uh, training its officers. Training's not, you know, it's not cheap. It's expensive. And so we need to make sure that the commit that, that the city administration is really committing to providing these officers with the training they need to do their jobs well. And then, of course, there, there are still a number of challenges in the police accountability infrastructure that need to be changed. And so those are things that I would expect to see in the consent decree as well. 
You're listening to WBBM News Radio's At Issue. I'm political editor Craig Delamore. My guest is former Chicago Police Accountability Chief Sharon Fairley, who is a Democratic candidate for Illinois Attorney General. Um, I want to talk about some of the issues that uh, could or or will come before you, and one of them is sort of an overarching one, and that is how does the lawyer who is essentially representing the, the state and its people operate in an atmosphere where I think in your view uh, the, even the governor might be doing things that uh, you don't agree is, is in the interest of the state. How do you, I mean, first off, where do you feel that Bruce Rauner has gone astray and what can the, an AG do about it? Yeah, so that's why it's really important to have someone who is independent from the political elite in this role because we don't want someone to take on this role who is beholden to the political leader's legislature or the or the, the executive branch um, that would influence the way that they go about um, taking using their powers. The, what's great, what's so great about the attorney general and the role of the attorney general is that the attorney general doesn't have to agree with the governor, right? That the, the, the attorney general has the full discretion to execute her powers in a way that she believes works best and is in the best interests of the citizens of Illinois. So say, for example, the Rauner administration, you know, takes a position on, you know, environmental enforcement and the attorney general doesn't agree. The attorney general doesn't have to follow that state agency's direction and what they want to do. The, the attorney general can say, no, I'm not going to take that position in court. Um, they, the attorney general absolutely can, can disagree and take a, a action and execute a plan that, that she thinks is best. And so that's why it's really important that we have someone in this role that has the courage and the tenacity to stand up to some of these political actors who are just so ever entrenched here in Illinois. And I think one of the uh, areas that there could be disagreements on, or there have been a number of attempts to bring down the state's pension debt. And that means in some cases, restructuring how pensions are either calculated or paid or whatever. And I know you have some strong feelings about that. Yeah, this is one of the areas in which I believe that our political leadership has really failed us. Um, They've been kicking the can down you know, and for year year after year and really failing to take action that's really going to solve this problem. And, the you know, when they tried, you know, they tried to pass a piece of legislation. You have And you have people in this race that were involved in that, right? So Kwame Raoul sponsored the pension reform bill and then Governor Quinn signed it. And this, looking at this piece of legislation, it is really unconstitutional on its face. And so to me, this is just another example of political leaders doing something just so that they could say that they did something, even though that something doesn't get us anywhere in particular. Um, and so that's what's so concerning to me. And as attorney general, you know, we can I could push back on that. The office can really push back on, on, on legislation that's being proposed that's unconstitutional. Um, we can express that point of view. So um, I really am concerned about that is an issue. And I know that it's a very complicated problem and it's going to take a lot of uh, uh, collaboration 
um, working across the aisle even perhaps um, to get this done um, because it could require you know, constitutional amendments, for example. But I believe that this, is, this, this problem needs to be solved sooner rather than later. We are losing, we are losing people from our state, and I, I, find it, I find it so frustrating and so sad. And, and it's going to have an impact of, on us. We know that we have the potential to lose you know, one or two congressional seats after the 2020 census, you know, if we continue to go in the direction we're going in. And, and that's just not helpful. And I just I, I feel very frustrated that the political leadership is not really trying to solve these pressing problems that we have. Uh, but is it a matter of uh, and you, you being a lawyer, I, I, I think you might agree with this. Your opinion. Yes, it seemed to a lot of people that that legislation was unconstitutional. But in the realm of, you know, uh, litigation, you can find lawyers who are going to tell you, oh, no. You can do this and they will go into court and they will fight it. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Uh, and, and how do you how do you break past that to something that could fly when you're going to find advocates who are willing to take your case, especially for money uh, and, and, and fight the exact opposite of what you're saying? So I guess for, for when I, the way I look at this particular piece of legislation, right, is that we, they they knew it was unconstitutional. And the way that we know that they knew is because of the five pension systems that could be affected by the piece of legislation, there was one that was left out. And that was the one that was related to the judges. And so they knew that this piece of legislation was going to be litigated, right? And, that, that, and, and that, that's how we know that they knew it was unconstitutional. That's, that's why I'm concerned about it, because that to me is just very disingenuous. Well, uh, let's go on to some other issues. Uh, and one of them is how can the a AG's office better combat or help combat gun crimes and things like gun trafficking? Sure. This is um, a real challenge. And unfortunately, there is no one solution. There's no panacea for this. So I believe that the gun violence problem needs to be approached from a variety of perspectives. So the first thing is, gun laws, right? We know that we need to strengthen our laws to prevent um, the illegal possession of guns in, inside our state. We know that approximately 40% of the guns that are recovered from crimes come from within Illinois and the other 60 come from outside. So we need to work on our own situation, which I really am hoping to support the Gun Dealer Licensing Act, for example. Um, but we also need to be a strong advocate for stronger federal laws because we are surrounded by states whose gun laws are not quite as strong as ours. So, you know, working on gun laws is one thing. The second thing is enforcement. And I believe that the attorney general's office can work more proactively with the law enforcement agencies across the state to increase um, prosecution of gun crimes. And I know the office has been doing some, some of it and, and also partnering with the U.S. attorney's office and the state's attorneys to get this done. But we need to work in a much more coordinated fashion to make sure that we're really making progress there. And then the third area is, you know, community engagement, community support and economic development. So we, we're I believe that we are going to continue to have a wrestle with gun crime unless we get more economic opportunity and educational equality in some of these communities that are so um, affected by, by gun violence. So that, in addition to some of the programs that actually evidence shows actually can reduce gun violence, 
For example, there's a program done by the YMCA of Metropolitan Chicago called Urban Warriors. And it's a mentorship program where they put together war, uh, veterans with um, at-risk youth and in, in a mentoring scenario. And they go through, I believe the program is either 8 or 12 weeks, and they meet and they, they talk and they, and they have activities. And this program has been shown to actually reduce um, kids' propensity to, to engage in that kind of activity. So we need to build more programs like that into the communities that are affected by violence. So, you know, that with, you know, educational opportunities as well is really important. So gun violence is, is a multidisciplinary, it needs a multidisciplinary solution. I just realized there was a pension question I wanted to ask you. Sure. Uh, so I want to go back to it for just a second, and that's because the City Civic Federation uh, came out with a sort of a blueprint for uh, for helping the state through its financial troubles. One of the suggestions was taxing retirement benefits, which a lot of states do. We don't. Right. Do you have an opinion about that? So, you know, I, w- I would say I'm not an expert in that area, but I will tell you my gut reaction is that not, is that, I believe that retirees who have sort of planned their lives around a certain amount of income, including the way their income is being taxed, is is not a great solution. Um, and I I would prefer to find alternatives before I went there. Okay. Now, uh, let me, uh, and we only have a couple of minutes left, so we may be giving short shrift to some big topics, one of which would be sexual harassment. Mm. So let me get to the main question, and that is how do you get the legislature to vote to give the legislative inspector general, I can't say it any, I can't say this politely, powers that are realistic, <laughs> which is because, yes. I mean, we had the, the uh, inspector general in here describing what she can and can't do. So, right. yes. and there's a lot on the can't list. There certainly is. And, and the inspector general is, is an attorney who I know well and have the most respect for. And I know She'll do a great job while she's in that role. Um, we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to get the political will to get this done. And I think the way to do that is, is people are gonna stand up and say that they demand this of their leaders. That I think that's the best way to make it happen. I believe that the citizens of Illinois, who are voters, have had enough, and they really want change out of this political system and they are no longer going to tolerate these leaders who think that they are above the law um, and I believe that they're going to start using their vote um, to, to, to display that frustration uh, and that's why I'm so excited about this race and I'm excited about um, you know the, the upcoming 2018 election cycle we've you know we have so shown that we, particularly women <laughs> have shown that when they come together, they can do a lot of good things with their vote um, and make the important things happen. And so this is what I'd like to see happen here in Illinois. One other quick uh, issue, sort of, uh, and that is uh, there are bills to legalize recreational marijuana. They're at the county level. They're at the state level. What's your view on those? Sure. I believe that we should legalize marijuana, but do it in a thoughtful way. Um, I believe that, you know, obviously it, there, there needs to be some regulation because there are some risks associated with it. We, we know that uh, marijuana use in children, their, their brains are still developing. I would be concerned about that. So we need to be thoughtful about what age that it becomes illegal to use it. But then also we need to come up with the regulatory structure 
uh, for how to make sure that our citizens are safe, right? So uh, standards for driving under the influence, where it can be sold, those kinds of things I think need to be grappled with. And I think that there's a lot of learning that can be had from the states who have already gone down this path. So we don't have to reinvent the wheel. That will be the last word on uh, this topic and these topics. That is Sharon Fairley. She's a candidate for Illinois Attorney General. Thank you very much for Thank spending you, the half hour here. <laughs> Thank uh, you. I appreciate to it. our listeners, if you would like a copy of this program or just to hear it again, please visit our website. That is WBBMNewsRadio.com. It's actually the same website, but the uh, address to get there is different, wbbmnewsradio.com. Just follow the audio links. Uh, you can also find our podcasts on radio.com. I'll be back next week with another edition of Ad Issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com.